And we are starting our next sermon series, our fourth in Genesis, with the new topic, Is There Any Hope for This World? We've answered the questions, what was God's purpose in creating the world? What happened to the world? Why is there sin? Why is there corruption? Is there any hope for man? And we saw that, yes, there was last week because of God's grace. Now we're going to begin answering the question, is there any hope for this world? And this is going to take us through the next two chapters. And why we have a division here is because Noah places, or not Noah, Moses places a division in the text here. He says these are the records of the generations of Noah. We've had so far the records of the heavens and the earth. The book of the records of Adam, indicating that there probably was writing back then, that these are written records that Noah, that Moses is uh, compiling. But now we have our third list of generations. And this is the generations of Noah. What happened to Noah and his children? We have a very large parenthesis in this genealogical record. Between Genesis 6-9 and Genesis 9-27, we have a parenthetical event of the flood. That means that this comes in between this genealogical record that goes from Noah to Shem. And so this section is called the Toledot of Noah, his records. And this message is going to be primarily applicational. I even shortened the verses. So what is written in your, uh, in your handout, or not in the handout, in the bulletin this morning is not quite accurate. Uh, we're going to spend a lot more time on faith and grace uh, than I had anticipated when I made this schedule four or five months ago. We're going to talk about the corruption of the world in Noah's day and how Noah was saved by grace through faith. And then we'll talk about our faith. So the main point up front, God's holiness prompts disciplinary judgment. It's because of God's holiness that he has to judge the earth. Only God can hold mercy and justice in the same hand. If he never brings judgment, then he is not a just God. If he does not provide a means of salvation, then he is not a merciful God. We see God working perfectly his character of justice and mercy in a way that no human ever could. But God's judgment comes quickly after an extended offer of grace. We never see a brief moment of grace with long periods of unnecessary torment. Whatever judgment there is, is equal to what is deserved. But whatever judgment there is, its period is far shorter than the period of grace. And that grace is never deserved. Grace alone provides the basis for escape from judgment. And grace has nothing to do with us. We do nothing for this grace. We receive it through faith. In the same way as you trust a chair by sitting on it, you are not holding yourself up once you sit down on that chair. It is holding you up. But you must sit on it in order to receive the support of that chair. 
so is faith the same. We receive God's grace through faith, but our faith does not merit that grace. So we begin with the corruption of the world in Noah's day, and we are going to see that it merits God's judgment of the entire world. We start in Genesis 6, 8, and we can see that Noah found favor. That is grace, the first time it appears in the scriptures. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and he walked with God. But there is a contrast, a contrast with the world. Noah was unlike the world at, those, at this time. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now this is, again, in stark contrast to what God saw when he first created this creation. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God creates good things. Man recreates corruption. God looked, the same verb there in the Hebrew. He looked at the earth and behold, it was corrupt, no longer good. See, God does not create corruption. Man distorts God's creation and turns it into corruption. And this merits judgment. We have destroyed something of God's. We have destroyed ourselves who belong to God. This word corrupt means to ruin, to destroy, to spoil, to annihilate, and to wipe out. In fact, the judgment that God brings on this earth is entirely equal to what man has done to this earth. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy. The same word used for the corruption of the earth. I'm about to destroy them with the earth. They ruined the earth with their sin. I will ruin them with the earth and the earth with them. This is the doctrine of lex talionis, which we see all throughout scripture. In English, the law of retribution. God never overdoes his judgment. When we look at God's response to sin, we see just how terrible sin is. Because God's judgment is always equal to the severity of sin. When we get to the last days, the tribulation period, seven years of judgment, it far exceeds the one year of judgment in Noah's day. This will be the same degree of sin as merits. Seven years of judgment. And it will finish the judgment for the sin of all the earth. So we see here in this microcosm of the flood, God's judgment being perfectly enacted on the earth, and he is about to destroy the whole earth. Second Peter will talk about this as a destruction of the whole universe, equal to the destruction of the universe coming after the tribulation period. But here we have the next stage in our dispensation. 
God works in periods of testing man's obedience. Man has not been obedient under this dispensation of conscience. Having this faculty of the knowledge of good and evil, man is responsible to do all good and to avoid all evil. And what he does instead is to do all evil. There was nothing good left in him. And so God is about to bring divine judgment in the flood. This judgment is equal to the failure under conscience. God is going to offer divine grace by rescuing Noah. And that will be what we spend the majority of this morning looking at, is what made Noah savable. But first we look at what Peter says. See, this is an apostolic interpretation of Genesis. We get to see how the Holy Spirit interprets his own words. So in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, we read, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This merits the question, why save Noah? Was he better than everyone else? Was he the only person saved positionally by faith in God? Or was he the only one obedient to God's commands and continuing in fellowship with God? See, there is a difference between eternal judgment and temporal judgment. We see here in 2 Peter 2.6 a few more examples of similar situations. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who, were who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, who among us would label Lot as a righteous man? We would probably label him as very corrupt. He was living in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah willingly. He was probably participating in many of their lewd activities. But God counts him as righteous. And God counts him as righteous for a very specific reason. Because Lot's faith had made him righteous. Better said, because of Lot's faith, God counted him righteous. And so it says, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul, tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. God knows how to divide between those who are his and those who are not. God knows the intentions of the heart. God knows those who have placed their faith in him. God is able to make distinctions that we as people cannot make. And God is able to rescue those who are his from judgment. So he keeps the right, unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authorities. So what made Noah savable? What about him 
made him useful for God to preserve the entire human race. Moses tells us he was righteous, he was blameless, he was obedient. In Genesis 6, 9 through 10, we see these three attributes brought out. Noah was a righteous man and he was blameless in his time. In the Hebrew, these are right next to each other. This is, this is expressing two sides of the same coin. He is righteous because he is declared righteous by God and his righteousness makes him blameless before God. This word righteous means just or innocent or not guilty. Not guilty of what, we might ask? The penalty of sin. Noah was not a sinless man. That's never the claim. But Noah's sins were not accounted to his, uh, to his account. He would not bear the penalty of his sins for one very specific reason. Noah trusted God not his own works, to save him. And we can't understand this without, underst or without reading verse 8 as well, which we did last week. You see, grace has to come before righteousness. One cannot be made righteous without God's grace because man does not deserve the righteousness accounted to him. Nothing good that man can do is ever good on God's account. Just as Isaiah would say, all the deeds of the righteous are filthy rags before the Lord. Nothing that we do can earn us one ounce of salvation, but it is all by God's grace. Both of these words here, grace and righteousness, are used for the first time here in Genesis. You see, when God looks at our salvation, he would say we are saved by grace. When we look at our salvation, we say we are saved through faith. God is the one who gives grace and we receive it by that faith. In Ephesians 2, we get this, uh, probably the best summary statement of the process of salvation. Starting in verses 1 through 3, we see our state before faith. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses are guilt. You have to break some standard, break some rule in order to trespass. Trespass has to have an object. We have broken God's holy rule. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, at one point in Noah's life, Noah was a child of wrath. Noah was even as the rest in his generation. It was not because of something special about him that set him apart, but because, through a simple act of faith, Noah received the grace that was offered to every human being in his generation. But God being rich in mercy, remember only God can hold justice and mercy in the same hand. Because of his great love, 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our transgressions because the deserved end of sin is death. All of the works that we do earn us wages of death. But he made us alive together with Christ. And let's not forget the purpose statement he gave us just a few words earlier. Because of his love. This is the reason he saved us. Because of his love, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul interjects a parenthetical statement here because he can't wait to get to his conclusion. He's going to get to his conclusion in verse 8, but he says, by grace, you have been saved. Notice there is nothing anywhere in this passage about anything we have done. This is all God's work. God alone does the work of salvation in mankind. In Proverbs 11, we read that riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. Solomon could have been writing about Noah here. It was Noah's righteousness that saved him, but Noah's righteousness was not because of his works. Noah's righteousness was because of his faith. Now Noah's faith, we will notice, works together with his actions. He will be obedient in this faith. He continues, and so he is saved temporally as well as spiritually, but by the time we meet Noah, he is already spiritually saved. And God is about to tell us through Moses about Noah's continued faith and how God was able to use Noah's obedience. Hebrews 11 records this about Noah. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, God, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We have to believe that he exists and we have to believe that he is the one who fulfills his promises. And so by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. We have two aspects of faith working its way out in this passage. We have both initial faith, which rendered righteousness to Noah's account. And because of that righteousness and his continued faith working together, Noah was able to be used by God. In Ephesians 2.8, coming back to our Ephesians passage here, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the mechanism of receiving it. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This demonstrative pronoun, that, in the second line, is a neuter pronoun. It does not refer to grace. It does not refer to faith, both of which are feminine nouns. It refers to the entire process of salvation. God's faith being the cause of our salvation and faith 
being the way in which we receive it. You see, faith is the adapter that can receive grace into mankind. God's grace is the energy by which we are saved. Merrill Unger writes here of Noah, just means righteous in the sense of approaching God by faith and being declared acceptable on the ground of trust in God's grace. Trust and faith is the same concept, which would provide salvation through the Redeemer to come. Noah is saved the same way we are. The only requirement is faith, simple trust, belief that God's promises will come to pass. Belief that putting your faith in God, he is able to save you just as he said he would. The basis is always the death of Jesus, though Noah did not know that at the time. Noah understood that however God would bring this about, it would be him who would bring it about. And he did in his son. The object of that faith is always God's word or promise. So when we say, I believe, I being the subject, believe being the verb, what is the object? It is always God. I believe God. I trust God. That is all it takes to receive God's grace. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, a completed action in the past with continuing results. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We have three aspects of salvation in this passage. We have the completed work of Jesus Christ in rendering us justified before God. We have an introduction into something in which we stand. This is a present tense. We were introduced by simple faith into a new condition, which we now stand in. And we have a hope of future glory. We have three tenses of salvation here. And so as we move into the next characteristic of Noah, we get to see these tenses working their way out in his life. Noah was blameless in his time. Blameless meaning complete, without fault, and perfect. This was the result of being rendered justified, being rendered righteous. Now Noah is blameless. He is prepared for the works which God has for him. He has everything he needs in order to be faithful because of what God has provided him through his grace. In Deuteronomy 18.9, we see that when you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. God is speaking to the Jewish generation that is about to enter the land. He's giving them a command not to be like those they are about to surround themselves with. A few verses later, it says, for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. 
God is about to cleanse the land of Canaan of all of the detestable generation which dwells in it, and God is going to bring Israel into promise by means of faith. And he is going to expect of them that they shall be blameless before the Lord their God. Their faith should work together with their position of purity to work purity. Because of what God has done on their account, they will be expected to act like it. Not to corrupt themselves with the corruption all around them. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is a wrath absorber. He takes on the wrath that we deserve as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Not righteousness accounted to him, but inerrant righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that we receive through faith. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God's grace which would be finally worked out on the cross, 2,500 years earlier was already working to save Noah. And Noah received it by faith that someday, somehow, God alone is going to pay my debt. We look back and know that that debt has already been paid. How much more guarantee should we have in his promises? Romans 3.26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that is to us in the church, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Neither grace, nor faith, nor the works that we do, as obedient believers, has anything to do with our own merit. Everything that works to save us is from God. By faith alone we receive it. By faith alone we walk in it. So all boasting is excluded, save for boasting in God or boasting in the cross. That we can boast in, not our own works, but his work. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So then what does Noah's obedience have to do with anything? You see, with grace, it's easy to say, I'm saved. Now I can live however I want. Paul makes an extended argument against that in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He says, so what, should we sin now so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. In fact, the words that Paul uses in Romans 7 to say that kind of have the sense of, are you insane? Why would you ever want to go back to that life? Why would you ever want to live apart from 
all that God has given to you in your present salvation. All that God has prepared for you. All that God has prepared for you in future glory. Why would you not want to live in that today? Why would you not want to take hold of that gift? See, Ephesians 2.8 continues. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his work. This word workmanship is only used here and once elsewhere in Romans. It's the Greek word poema, from which we get our English word poem, a masterpiece, a work of art. It comes from the Greek word poieo, which is different from the word used for man's work, ergon. Ergon has the idea of exhausting effort, almost hopelessly. But this word used for God, poieo, has the idea of completed work, finished action, something that succeeded. And here it is emphasized as a masterpiece, a workmanship, something which he alone did. And he created it in Christ Jesus. He recreated us in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. And so we often get this backwards. We think somehow our works save us and then we are justified. But no, because of grace, we are justified through faith, and then we can walk in the good works which he has prepared to do through us. And so that which God prepared beforehand, these good works, most likely these good works were prepared before the foundations of the earth were even laid in God's eternal purposes. He already planned all of these good works And notice, we are to walk in them. We are not to do them. He does not use the word poieo. He does not use the word ergon. He uses the word walk. We simply walk. We walk by faith. And we do the works of the Lord. And so Noah walked with God. What does this mean? Noah had continued fellowship with God. Not only was he saved once and for all through an act of faith, but his faith continued. His faith worked in his life so that when God said, I am about to destroy the entire earth, Noah said nothing. Not one word of Noah is recorded until after the flood. But do you know what we get instead? And Noah did all that the Lord said. And again, Noah did all that the Lord said. And again, Noah did all that the Lord said. This is what we have recorded of Noah's faith. Noah's faith was active. Last Tuesday, we saw in our Life of Messiah class that Zacharias, when he was told that his barren wife would have a child, He doubted. He questioned. He said, how is that possible? And he was temporarily punished for his disbelief. He was struck mute until God brought his promise about. 
See, even man's disobedience is not going to deny God his working of his will. But if we want to be participants in this, we walk by faith. And that's what Noah did. That's what Enoch did as well. Noah, or Enoch rather, in just a few hundred years before Noah, says Enoch walked with God 300 years. That's a long time to continue in fellowship with God. Sometimes we struggle for our 80 or 90 years to walk continuously in fellowship with God. Enoch had a steady, settled faith. Despite how bad the world was becoming, it paled in comparison to how perfect God is and how trustworthy God's promises are. And so Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11.5, just before Noah's entry in the Faith Hall of Fame, says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, there were plenty of people who believed in God in the Old Testament. Not all of them were taken up. In fact, in the Old Testament, only two are recorded as being taken up without seeing death, Enoch and Elijah. And so how was Enoch pleasing to God? Through faith. Faith is the only way to be pleasing to God. Without faith, anything done not trusting in God, is not pleasing to God. Enoch, just like Noah, walked with God. He continued in faith. He continued to trust God. Did you know that not trusting in God is actually a sin? To not believe that God is who he says he is. And you know, we have no reason not to believe in God. We have no reason not to trust him because all that he said he would do, he has done. Sometimes we tell him what he ought to do, and he doesn't do it, and so we stop trusting him. This should never be a reason to lose faith. Because faith is the only way by which we can walk. But look at how Noah's faith worked in the peripherals of his life as well. No one besides him, his three sons, their wives, and Noah's wife got on the ark. Now we might look at this and say, look how futile his ministry was. That of all the people on the earth, only his family got on the ark. But we might say it differently. We might say, look how influential Noah was in his family. Because this father walked by faith, and so his family had a witness in their household that led them to faith. In Genesis 7, 1, it says, The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Because of Noah's faith, his family was temporally saved, and because of the demonstration of his faith, they were eternally saved through faith faith of their own. In Acts 16, we see this as well. When a Roman jailer asks Paul and Silas, how can I be saved? 
and they give him a very, very simple command. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And then he extends this offer to their entire household. You and your household. Salvation is not... How can I say this? Salvation is available to everyone. You will never meet a single person in your entire life for whom Christ did not die. You can share this with all of them. In fact, if someone wants to know how to get saved, just tell them, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you can tell them as well, your entire household has this offer available to them as well. This should not stop with you. And so to say this rather provocatively, Noah's faith did not save him. God's grace saved him. But Noah received that gracious salvation through faith. Faith is not a work. In fact, Paul frequently juxtaposes these two. He contrasts them and says, not by works, but by faith. These are not the same thing. Noah didn't do faith. Noah simply received God's gift. But then his faith, working properly, and that is continuing, kept him in fellowship with God so that he was pleasing to God. And he was prepared for the enablement of obedience and salvation from temporal judgment. Scripture does not say that there were, but you know it is quite possible that there were those who were justified positionally in Noah's generation besides Noah alone. What God is talking about here is the continued faith that made him useful so that he could be part of God's plan. Noah was a faithful believer. There may be some from Noah's generation who will be in heaven, but they will be there as though through fire, having no rewards to look forward to. They will get there because of God's grace and because faith receives that grace. But faith should continue working in the life of the believer. It does not stop the moment you believe. We are called to walk in that faith. We want to remember that Genesis was written to Israel. The events recorded here by Moses were expedient for the Israeli generation coming out of Egypt to understand how God has worked in the past so that they could trust him for the promises of the future. We see that Israel did have faith as a nation. And in fact, that faith was early on in their record coming out of Egypt. They had faith in the Passover lamb. Israel trusted God to save them when the angel of death took the firstborn from every Egyptian household. But they who painted their doorposts with the blood of the lamb were spared. 
they trusted God. When God parted the sea and they walked through it, and then God flooded the Egyptians and killed them all. In fact, when they get to the other side, they look at the Egyptians laying dead on the shore, and they declare their faith in God. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The entire generation that came out of Egypt, Scripture says they believed. They were justified through faith alone, positionally, in the Lord. And as their faith worked in their lives and as it continued, God brought them blessing. But Israel did not continue in their faith. They had an issue trusting God. Every time they came to an obstacle in the wilderness, it was as if they forgot that he ever did anything for them. It was as if they thought that these little issues they were having in the wilderness even paled in comparison to what God did in bringing them out of Egypt. You know, the Exodus event, it says, will not be paralleled until the very end, until God brings Israel back on the wings of an eagle out of the northern countries. It says that will be the only event that ever parallels what God has done in, e in Israel already by bringing them out of Egypt. And so not having enough food, not having enough water, they did not trust God to provide. Even though God had already provided them with so much. But the biggest issue comes in not taking possession of his promise. In Kiriath-Jerim, standing outside the promised land, as they are about to go in, mind you, this is the, um, the same generation that came out of Egypt. Now they are looking at the promised land where God promised to bring them. Twelve spies go in, twelve come back, ten convince the entire nation to reject God's promises. God is not big enough to finish his promises. God is not big enough to give us possession. That entire generation is denied entry, save for the two who did not believe that God could not bring them in and take possession. In fact, Caleb and Joshua explicitly declared that God is on their side and that they will enter into the land, and they did. They believed God. They rested in faith, and God blessed them in their day. Psalm 95 speaks about this event. It says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. Although they had every reason to believe God, they did not. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Now we saw months ago God's rest on the seventh day 
after creation, when God completed all that he was doing in creation, he sat down and he began to rule. He began to rest. What God is doing in Israel is bringing that rest back to mankind. He's going to do it through Israel by bringing a king who will begin to rule and so bring rest. And so Israel, in becoming a nation, is walking in that process of God's bringing about his original intention for this creation. They are going to be used one way or another by God of bringing that rest. And each generation will have an opportunity to walk in God's promises. One generation would have the opportunity to receive that very king. But instead they would reject him. And so a final generation will be made that offer once again and they will receive the king and he will begin to reign and there will be rest. And that brings us to our inheritance with God. What do we learn both from Genesis account of Noah resting in faith and being used by God to carry him into the new world? And Israel, not trusting in God's work with them, nor in the record of history which Moses brought them. And so they did not enter into rest. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 gives us a passage that some would use to teach you that you do not have security in Christ's finished work. But it has a much different meaning. And in fact, it is very beneficial to us to understand this passage. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the last part of that sounds a lot like Ephesians 2.10. God has prepared works, good works for us. He has done those good works. We walk in them through obedience, through continued faith. But now, what about this fear and trembling? This is the same kind of fear as we would have for a parent, not to disobey. The relationship between a child and a parent is one of love, but it is one of respect. Our freedom in Christ is not a blank check to do whatever we want because we are saved. We do have responsibilities in the body of Christ, especially the responsibility of obedience. Continued faith in our three tenses of salvation, too, are completed at the cross and received at the moment of salvation. And one is on the basis of the cross still. That is the middle one, our abiding in Christ, our sanctification. This can only happen because 
Christ has saved us from sin's penalty. And as we train our focus on the promise to come in glorification when sin's presence will be removed from us, we have everything we need for sanctification, to continue trusting in God and walking in the salvation that he has already rendered to our account. And so the cross enables us for our Christian walk. And the cross guarantees our future glory with God. And so for the rest of this message, I want to focus on that second tense, present tense. How should we be living our lives in light of these truths? John 15, 4 through 5 gives us a good example of what it means to rest in Christ. It says, abide in me and I in you. This is Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now to use a 21st century example, we are like lamps. When we are plugged into the wall and switched on, the currents allow us to produce light. That light does not come from us. It comes from the energy source, which gives that lamp the ability to give off light. When that lamp is switched off, that does not mean it is unplugged. Power is still going into that lamp, but it is not being used. We are to have our lamps switched on, to continue in faith, to continue trusting and resting in God so that he can produce light through us just as we would continue in the vine so that he could produce fruit through us. In Philippians 2, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. This does not say make yourselves blameless, but demonstrate what you already are. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. How like Noah. Noah proved himself to be blameless. He did not make himself blameless, but because he was, he was able to walk in faith and obey God, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, holding fast the word of life. Do not let go of the faith through which you were saved. Faith rest drill is something that is very important to be capable of doing in the Christian life. To do exactly what Israel did not do in the wilderness generation. To look at those promises which God has already fulfilled and trust that he is not only working for your best end, but that whatever he is working will come about. It will come to pass. Hebrews 4.1 says, let us fear again. Let us have deep respect for this truth that God is presenting. 
that if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. What is God's rest that he is talking about? He's going to develop it more here in the Hebrews 4 passage, but this is our rewards and our rule in the coming millennial kingdom. If our faith seems to be faltering and so rewards are not being earned on our part through the work of God in and through us, let us fear that we are not entering into that rest that he has already provided for us. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. Just as they also, the they here is referring back to that Israel or that Exodus generation of Israel. Just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. Why did it not profit them? Because it was not united with faith in those who heard it. God said, I will bring you into this land of promise. And they did not believe him. For we who are believers will enter that rest. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Speaking of Israel again. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Everything necessary for receiving that rest has already been completed. And from the very beginning of the world, it was as good as completed because God's promises cannot fail to pass. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his work. And again in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, that is all of us, we are not yet living in the millennial kingdom. While it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today. Saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You may have heard it said, Christ's mercies are new every day. So yes, if you have not been walking in faith, the day to begin walking in faith is today. The day to begin trusting God is today. This has to do with all three tenses of salvation. Trust him that the work is finished. Trust him that he is working in you today. Trust him that he will bring about that rest in the kingdom. For if Joshua had given them the rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Although the second generation entered into Israel, it was not the kingdom that he had promised to bring them. That kingdom was still coming. That kingdom requires the king of God's choosing, ruling over them so that they may enter into his rest. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest... Who is this speaking of? Who is the one who has already enter entered into this rest? The one whose work is finished? Jesus Christ. 
The one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did before his, as God did from his. John 19.30, therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. His work of salvation has been finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And he took up a throne at God's right hand. Just as we one day will take up a throne at his right hand. And this is the rest that he is speaking of. In Revelation 3.20, he offers this to the church of Laodicea. A church of saved believers who are not work- walking in faith. He says to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is an offer of fellowship. Being that they are part of the church, they are already saved, but they have shut the door. Their faith is not continuing and it is making them lukewarm. So he says, open the door, I will come in and I will dine with you. And he who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What a promise to hold on to. What a rest that we will enter into on the day when we pass into glory. And so the author of Hebrews has an exhortation. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience as Israel demonstrated in the wilderness. When we read passages like Noah's faith in the flood, and we contrast that with Israel who had that record and still failed to enter into God's rest, it encourages us to receive on the basis of faith that rest which God gives us. And so the faith rest drill, when we look at God's fulfilled promises, we have strength and faith to hold on to his future promises. And what are his future promises but rest? Entering into his rest, and what does that mean? Today, as we walk by faith, we are exercising faith, and exercise brings strength. As we exercise this faith, we are training for reigning in the kingdom. Paul quotes a hymn that the first century church was singing. And he quotes it because it is a trustworthy statement. It is doctrinally accurate. And it is beneficial for Timothy, the new pastor at Ephesus, to keep these words in mind. He says, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. This is true. This has happened to all who have received justification, God's grace, through faith. It says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. When did this happen? When he was crucified. How did we receive this? Through faith. This became true of us the moment we believed. We have 
died with him. We will be made alive in him, but we are already living in him. That life has already become part of who we are. Our eternal life began the day we believed. It does not begin the day we die. When we die, we transfer into the full rest that he has promised. That's what changes. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, he writes, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. We are able to do those good works that he has prepared beforehand for us because we have died with him through faith alone. But then he adds, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Now this is speaking of degree of reigning. This promise of the overcomer, John identifies the overcomer as all who have had faith in Jesus Christ and so are made alive in him. We are overcomers. We are super overcomers in him. John 5, 1 John 5, 4. And so we have this promise of sitting on throne with him. But what does that look like? In Revelation 24, it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. We will be part of God's process of judging the world, the wicked dead, and the angels which have sinned. We are part of that judgment when we rule with him. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life. They were resurrected. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, we are training for reigning. Doesn't always look that pretty on this earth, but we always have every provision necessary to walk in those good works that he has prepared. And we have this promise to hold on to. This is a promise that we can use when we exercise that faith rest drill. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of, a, of the sun because the Lord will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Just as certainly as Noah was carried through the flood, just as certainly as Christ finished walk, work on the cross, so certain is this promise. Rest in God's completed work. Continue in faith. Now Paul continues and says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Again, this is taken out of its context quite often to say that you can reject your own salvation. That is not anywhere in the context here. That is not what Paul is talking about. The next verse is going to tell us that Christ cannot deny himself. And we are his body. We are made alive in him at the moment we believe. What is it talking about here if we deny Christ? He's talking about rewards. Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't deny God. Present your bodies as that spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to walk in faith with God and so be that spiritual sacrifice to him. Do not deny him your spiritual service of obedience. Because that spiritual service of obedience brings rewards. When we enter into that rest, if we deny Christ our obedience, he will deny us those rewards. That is what 2 Timothy is speaking about. It is a lex talionis principle. What we deny him, we will be denied in the kingdom. We have rewards that we can be earning through walking in faith. The martyrs walk in faith all the way to death. They are given a special crown. Those who serve in the church by any capacity, not even an official capacity. Those who are servants and teachers. They receive a crown of glory. Those who love his appearing, those who are eagerly awaiting his return, being so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good, in other words, there is a crown waiting for them. And the crown of rejoicing, the soul winner's crown, being so eager to share the same salvation that saved you with others, be it your family or whoever you encounter, knowing that this offer of salvation is available to absolutely everyone you will encounter at any time in your life. Do you have a heart for sharing what saved you? There is a crown waiting for you in heaven. And these crowns are incorruptible. Unlike crowns that we make, these do not disintegrate. These do not rust. These are the glory of God worn visibly on his saints. The glory of God for the work that he has done in and through us. Because our light was switched on, we were able to be used by him. He finishes, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Those, uh, those who teach that this means you can lose your, pat your salvation often skip this verse because this is an eternal security verse. Nothing you can do will take you out of the double grip of God the Father and Christ the Son. Your destiny is secured at the moment of salvation. The only question remains, how much will you be used by God? 1 Corinthians 3 says, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. When that hay, stubble, and wheat passes through the fire together with gold, silver, and precious stones, what is left? 
if there is something left, that will be a reward. See, the works of man are filthy rags. Those get burned up. But the works of God in and through us, those are gold, silver, and precious stones. And those become our reward. Now, if you go back earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about building a foundation, which is Christ Jesus. And that what we build is on top of that. Because that foundation of Christ Jesus will pass through that fire unscathed for everyone, no matter what is built on top of it. This is not talking about eternal salvation or eternal damnation, but rewards in the kingdom. So he says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, loss of reward. But he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. You don't want to get to heaven smelling like smoke. You will get to heaven. But you want crowns that you can throw at the feet of the Lord. His glory worn visibly. Because in this world, it would be running in vain to have all of this available and ready for us to walk in it and to choose not to. And so we can agree with Paul, what insanity to continue to sin, to lose the faith, just so you can keep walking in the same way you were before. Faith saves, but faith also enables because it continues to receive God's grace for all you need for life. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, and now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And Christ cannot deny himself. What is our takeaway? Grace secures the believer from eternal punishment at the moment of faith. But there is so much more to salvation. Continued faith is necessary for the believer to live a life pleasing to God to be used by God and to gain rewards for that day when we enter into his rest. So we are training for reigning and do not lose the faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that our salvation does not end the moment we believe, that we are not raptured up immediately, but that we have the opportunity to be spiritual sacrifices to you. We pray that you give us grace as we receive it by faith so that we may walk in it and be useful to you. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.